good evening. You are listening to the Year Now podcast. I'm Craig, not reading from a script, and I'm back for the first time for three podcasts. And joining me this evening, we have two special guests. We have uh, returning guest Tim Aiken. Hello. And Alexander Maxwell. Also returning guest. Hello. Indeed. Yes, well, well, you you were bracketed in my returning guests there, Hmm. (laughs) separated by a comma. I want my status as returning guest acknowledged. Okay. I also want the fact that he mispronounced Tim's surname to be acknowledged. Like, I was much better. Oh, geez. Sorry. Well, hang on. How's it better be? You you injected an I in there. Uh, Just Atkin. It's fine. Atkin. Okay. No, no. (laughs) It have an I in it? It doesn't it have an eye in it? No, it Kins. doesn't have an eye. No, call have call him Atkins or Watkins. Do it. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> Should we do this again then? Oh, no, no. No I, no, I think this is <laughs> no, fine. fine. <laughs> this is making me look good. Keep going. Okay. And uh, the regular contributors, Bronwyn. <laughs> Hello. I dare not pronounce your last name lest I get it wrong. <laughs> it's so confusing. Surprisingly, I, like, I get called Rideau a lot. And it, I yeah. should not be called Rideau. That's right. what I assumed. I assumed there was some exotic pronunciation that was probably French, given your Canadian yeah. origin. But the fact that no. ride out, ride out, yeah, like after the prison, <laughs> right? Okay. And, and as and as everybody can hear, we've got Mark Hornychurch here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. I thank ooh, you. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm. Uh, 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 anyway, yeah, so I am back to inject some humor into this thing, apparently. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so um, Mark, apparently, speaking of churches, you've been ejected from one recently. I have been ejected from one. Yeah, I I was booted out of Eastern Lightning um, and it was a little bit saddening. Um, I, you know, I, I just got so comfortable I'd got so familiar with our meetings three times a week that suddenly being thrown out was a little bit of a surprise. And suddenly I had my evenings back and I had to find something to do with myself. So, yeah, it it was a little bit upsetting, Um, actually really upsetting. You know, I, I sound like I'm joking here, but given that, you know, I was only in there to investigate and given that I am a rabid atheist, the fact that even someone like me would then feel this little twinge of missing out when I'm kicked out of a group, I can imagine that the threat of being kicked out for someone who's a true believer is probably enough to keep most people in line, Um, that most people will, yeah, try. I mean, once you're invested in these things, once you, you know, it, it becomes a bit of a social circle, it becomes a part of your life. I, I can imagine a lot of people just not wanting to lose that. And so I can see how, high control groups like Eastern Lightning can do a pretty good job once they've attracted people and once once they've made that investment, once, you know, and for something like Eastern Lightning, it's a big investment because you're pushing against your community, you're pushing against your family, you're joining a weird group and it takes a lot of boldness to do that. And I, I think people end up losing friendships, pushing family members away. And once you've made that investment, it's hard then to admit that you messed up it's hard then to accept that you might lose that uh, and so yeah i'm i'm not at all surprised that you know although their following is small it doesn't seem to be shrinking much 
I, I got a question. I mean, one of the things that a lot of these groups have, particularly the more esoteric ones, is this carrot that they dangle in front of you about discovering the inner mysteries. And of course, the big carrot that Eastern Lightning was dangling in front of you was, okay, there's a female god. Yeah. So if, you know, that, I mean, that it's kind of in a, in a way this group shoots their load very quickly. Like within the first two weeks, they've told you the big secrets, right? They've told you that it's a female Chinese coming of Christ. Oh gosh, there's a pun in there, isn't there? Um, <laughs> well, you've already done it. For, you, you know, you've, you've done the shooting your it's, it's, been, it's been an extended pun here. I've <laughs> overdone this one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so in a way they let you know very quickly a lot of the secrets, but then they suddenly put the brakes on. You know, I, I thought when we got to level three, one, once we'd been told these big revelations about female Christ from China, she's come back, she's judging everybody. I, I thought then we'd find out more. We'd be able to see sermons from her. We'd, we'd get to learn lots of details about what she was doing in the world. But they clammed up. They absolutely clammed up about it because, as, as we know from the stuff that you've written about Bronwyn and the stuff we've all read online, it seems like quite an abusive relationship where she's actually being controlled by this man called Zhao, I think it is. Um, and it seems like, you know, nobody really knows where she is. Nobody's seen her in years. And so they can't really talk about it and be proud about the fact that Jesus is here because nobody ever sees her because it, it's still very much an enigma. And they they actively and actively try and shut down any conversations where people try to ask about her and talk about her. So it's it's kind of odd. Yeah, I was expecting many more revelations and they just they don't give after that first couple of weeks. And do they have like their own prophets or, you know, sort of speakers or pastors who are famous, you know, less famous than your female God, but, you know, I guess they're like the Camerons in a sense, or they're like Hillsong Church. You know, you have your star pastors. Do they have that in Eastern Lightning? From my experience, I, I didn't see any of that. What we had was once we'd been told it was the female Christ, the other big thing was building up this one special brother. Um, the, you know, the, the brother Zhao is the conduit for um, the female Christ. And so we should treat his words as if they're her words. He is almost as holy as she is because he's been chosen. So we, we got him bigged up and we listened to a few sermons from him. Not even directly. I guess he, he only speaks Mandarin. So it ends up that we had a mixture of, I think, maybe voice actor, but a lot of it seemed to be um, just AI voices basically computer generated reading of his text. So that was it. Um, I think there's a, there's an inner circle of women that you wrote about that there might be like seven women that have been chosen, but we heard nothing about them. They weren't even introduced to us. There was no mention of them whatsoever, let alone hearing anything they had to say. Well, so what did you spend your time talking about if not hearing from Chinese female Jesus and not hearing from conduit of Chinese female Jesus? A lot of it is really repetitive. A lot of it is just a couple of really simple themes. Um, it, it's things like it doesn't matter how many of your family members and how many people around you are warning you about the church. You know the words of Almighty God by reading them. You can tell these are holy words. You can tell this is trustworthy just by reading the words. And you need to trust that and not and trust God, when God says that God is God, and you shouldn't trust your pastor who's telling you that you've joined 
a weird cult. Um, and the other one was about absolute obedience. It, it was the idea that God will call you to do different things and you always need to do this. You need to be ready to give your everything to God. Uh, if, if God is asking you to give the names of 10 family members on Facebook that we can contact, this is what God needs you to do. And you just need to do it. There should be no questioning. You just need to trust it when God asks you to do things. And a lot of what I think people are practically asked to do is to spread the message. It's put in long hours in order to help run these groups, to help with the outreach, messaging new people on Facebook and inviting them in. So it seems like it, a lot of it at the moment is kind of geared around spreading. All that serving is just spreading the word. And I guess this is probably one of the reasons why they have done fairly well is because they really focus on that idea of spreading. And Tim, you you wrote in the newsletter about how they how they've uh, managed the spreading. Like starting in China, they had a very specific way that they focused on trying to spread the word. Uh yeah, because. The church was very early on illegal in China, and there's like an official Protestant church that people are expected to be a part, part of. But especially Protestants have these independent house churches and will evangelize privately. Um, the strategy that Eastern Lightning used in China was to send people from their congregation out to other provinces to join other Protestant congregations and then to try and try and identify potential converts and then to introduce some of the theology to them and then pass that information back to the church leaders to then send someone to follow up and teach them the church's theology and kind of bring them into the fold. It was in the article it talks about two stages where it was the um, was it sounding out and paving the way. So sounding out was the identifying of, converts and then paving the way was kind of asking questions about about certain biblical passages or don't you think this about that or to, to test some of the waters and the idea was also I guess to get them to question the church's theology that they were currently with in a way that made them think Eastern Lightning was more correct. Yeah. So it right. seems like this is this is something they've replicated now outside of China, where I guess on social media, Facebook is what they're currently trying to use to spread into New Zealand. The the sounding out is that they do get people just to randomly message you on Facebook that, you know, they'll they'll start a new IM chat and ask if you would be interested in going to an online fellowship meeting. Um, and then I guess the paving the way is, I mean, the entire sermons, all of them are based based around this question answer format where it's multiple choice that the whole thing is like you you get a little bit of a passage or two and then you get a question based on that passage and you get pick a b c or d as your answer um and so they've they've really dumbed that thing down but again it's a case of questioning i guess they're getting rather than telling you what's true they give you the passage and then they ask you if you can figure out what's true and maybe maybe part of the psychology of that might be that they're empowering you you know it's not you being told the truth it's you discerning the truth yourself and then of course being rewarded they're big on emojis they're big on little animated gifts that they post in there well done and little heart emojis on your answer whether you get it right or wrong they're always giving you that positive reinforcement so it looks like they've kind of figured out some kind of way of translating this two stages these two parts of conversion to the online world but as you talked about in the article and i think i totally agree with you 
I don't think it's working very well. I don't think in other countries it's that simple to convert people. And like you said before, it seems like it wasn't the impression you had that here as well, they're kind of targeting Christians. They're not really evangelizing to other religions or non-believers. It's more focused on people who already are Christian and yeah, yeah ab- their church. Absolutely. And that, that was always a default assumption when talking with me was, you know, they were asking, which church do I go to and um, about my pre-existing religious beliefs. Um, and then, as you say, with the kind of the, the, the getting other people in, they did also suggest to people that maybe they could mention it in their church. Maybe they could challenge members of their church and ask them some searching questions. But then this it was is- always a case of don't give too many revelations, just do a little bit and then invite them to come to the online fellowship. Didn't uh, Jesus hear a parable about uh, planting the seed in a fertile field? <laughs> yeah, and churches seem quite fertile. I mean, I, I think when you're a religious believer, you've, you've already decided that you're going to drop exactly. your requirement for evidence, right? Yeah, indeed, indeed. So I've been out of the loop for a few weeks. So, Mark, exactly what happened to get you ejected? Yeah, um, I I gloated. Um, and at first I thought it was what I'd written, but I, I think I think somebody listened to our podcast, which is great. It's nice to know we have a diverse listenership to this podcast. <laughs> but basically, I was messaged one Saturday afternoon by Sister Marina or Preacher Marina, and she said that she'd heard from brother such and such. I'm not going to give his name. Um that I'd taken two books when I went to a face-to-face fellowship. I went to a meeting in somebody's house. Now, this was really weird because they they said they'd heard this. So there literally were only two of us at that meeting, me and the guy hosting it were the only people. When I when I asked him if I could take two copies of this book, he was absolutely happy. You know, I look keen as mustard to be asking for two copies. So he was like, yeah, of course. He had a stack of copies. I was the only person that turned up. Probably, if anything, I was doing him a favor because now it looks like he's handed them out to two people. He's looking like he's doing a better job. So I gloated about this. But it turns out I gloated about this only talking about how I'd got a copy of the book in the newsletter in our podcast, I talked about how I got two copies and how I, I the reason I got two copies was because Dan Ryan from the committee had also infiltrated this group. And I he was trying to get a book and for months could not get hold of a copy. And so it's like, I'm going to get him a copy as well. He deserves a souvenir, a memento, just like I do. When Sister Marina on this Saturday messaged me and said, hey, brother, I hear you took two copies of the book. I was like, oh, if, if the other guy like told them this, that would be really weird. Why would he even mention it? And then she started getting a little bit pushy about, oh, we need those books back. You're not supposed to take two copies. Can you give both of them back? I'm like, well, hang on. If I'm not meant to take two copies, surely I only need to give one back. She's like, oh, no, no. It turns out there are other families that need them. And I'm like, great. If there's another family that needs them, let me know. Maybe I can post them one. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. Now it's an adjustment. We, we're just doing an adjustment. And the books that they're not yours they were just lent to you see because you didn't pay they were just a loan and i'm like no no because i didn't pay they were a gift not a loan and honestly we had this long very petty argument about whether i was going to keep hold of my books or give them away and in the end i got to the point where i'm not having any more of this 
So I started accusing her of being possessed by demons. I basically said that if she was trying to take me away from the word of almighty God, maybe she's got a demon possession problem. And maybe this is why she's trying this. Maybe she needs help. Maybe I could pray for her and help her with her problem. She was not having any of that. She obviously knows she's not possessed by demons. So that didn't work very well at all. And then I figured, actually, I just need to cover my bases. Like the whole thing, the way she came at me, it seems very implausible that this brother at the face-to-face -face meeting had dobbed me in, but I needed to make sure. So I sent him a Facebook request to be friends, and then I messaged him as soon as he accepted my request and asked him, and he did confirm, oh, yeah, I told Sister Marina that you'd taken two books. And then he came back and said, but can I call you? Can we have a voice chat? And I was very keen to do this. So we had a chat and he was like, yeah, I, I told sister Marina, but she phoned me and she's acting really weird. What's going on? And I'm like, I, I think I know what's going on, but can you just check your phone and let me know what time she called you to ask about the books? And sure enough, it was after she'd come at me saying that he told her. So she obviously found about it from somewhere else. She got a little bit angry about this. I think unreasonably angry. As I write in the article, I think she just saw red. I think she saw me gloating about having these books. And in her head, it was instantly like the way to get back at Mark is to get these books off him. She didn't think logically. She didn't think about the long game. She just saw what I was happy about. And she wanted to take my happiness away. And so she went straight for that without thinking about how I was going to react to this or anything like that. So, yeah, I mean, it, almost immediately she basically let me know that she'd found out. But I don't think she found out herself. I, I really have a strong suspicion that a brother, Jared, who lives in Palmerston North, I upset him. I really annoyed him. And I think he was the one that would have been looking me up online to see what was going on with me. And I think he will have dobbed me into the church leadership. I mean, all credit to them, right? They they took six months, but eventually they figured out that I wasn't serious and they fairly quickly got rid of me. I think what we need to do is put a special tracking cookie in our podcast so we can find out who's listening to us. <laughs> I'm not sure what type of tracking cookie that is, but maybe we should Some talk- Some sort of mind virus. Maybe we should talk to Brian Dunning about this. I believe he's really good with tracking cookies. Oh, for anybody that doesn't know this story, please go and read about him. He's a good skeptic. He's got a dodgy history. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I don't think we're going to be able to do that. But as I said, my, my suspicions are fairly strong. I mean, what? Hang on. Let, let me find what he said to me. Basically, I, I got in an argument with Brother Jared one morning and I was playing it innocent and dumb. And he he started getting weird. He accused me of lying. He accused me of being disrespectful. And I pulled him up on this and I, I basically said to him, I forgive you, brother Jared. I, I figured that would do a good job of winding him up even more. And his response was, OK, mate, if you're going to mock me, just prepare for judgment. He got angry. And I think either he'd already looked me up and this is why he got angry or I made him angry. And then he went and looked me up to figure what was my deal? What's going on with me? But yeah, so I think he's he was already promoted to a group leader, but I think he's probably secured his place. If it was him that ratted me out, I, I imagine he solidified his place in the church. So good luck to him with his future in some scary cult. Hope he finds his way out. But he felt like a very intense, serious kind of guy. I, I imagine he might have 
quite a future in the church. He he seemed quite well suited to them. Okay. So anything more we need to talk about Eastern Lightning? I don't think so. If you've got the newsletter, please, please share my suffering and watch their TikTok dance videos because I don't want to be the only one that's watched those. They are truly painful. And again, they're fantastic. The idea- <laughs> they are fantastic. Or the longer form YouTube K-pop style, you know. Yeah. Cutesy, cutesy wootsy uh, videos. They're they're also equally so, as fantastic. So you didn't you didn't level up Mark and get to make your own TikTok videos. No, I, I'm assuming if I offered, it might have worked. They they might have been happy with it. In fact, what I did do just before I was kicked out, because Bromin and I went to prayers at Parliament, I, I knew that things were rocky with Jared. I knew that there were things going on. And so I tried to fortify my position. I messaged Sister Marina and I told her that I'd been at prayers at Parliament representing the Church of Almighty God, representing Eastern Lightning. And I said, you know, that there was a Chinese MP there and that we were hobnobbing with the uh, basic, the rich and powerful within Christianity in New Zealand. I, I really tried that one on I, and it did seem to work. She, she was quite surprised and she started talking again about getting me into a leadership position. Um, and at that point, I turned her down. I said, no, no, I, I've been snubbed too many times when, you know, I've been interested in leadership and then somebody's gone quiet. It's like, I feel God's telling me he doesn't want me to be a leader. And it's always he as well. That That's something that I never got to ask. I really wanted to ask at some point, like you told us in week two that God is a female and yet you still constantly refer to her as he. It seems a little bit off. Like on the one hand, I think maybe they could argue that, well, most people will get freaked out if we say she. But honestly, I think because Brother Zhao is the guy that's controlling it all, I think that's why they use he, because in reality, he's the guy behind the scenes doing it. And so he would probably get upset and annoyed if people were saying she. And I think he's just forced everybody to use he so that it doesn't feel weird to him. He's probably quite a vain person, I'd imagine. Oh, that was the Maybe. Holy Spirit gendered. Isn't that normally it? Yeah, but this isn't this isn't the Holy Spirit. This is I mean, this is someone in a physical body and, and yeah. it's a woman. And and yet they're still saying he. It really um, frustrated me because in a way the church felt liberated. Oh my God, you've got a female deity. This is brilliant. And then it's he. I didn't switch. <laughs> okay. So uh, speaking of other evangelical activities, you guys went and listened to some racist guy, apparently. Who's going to start? It was you that called him racist, not us. I'm not sure any of us called him racist in our articles. Did anybody actually call him racist outright? I I think I was, uh, I quoted the protesters (laughs) in in the title of my article. (laughs) Because I read the articles and he thinks that racism is bad. So, yep. He's on our side then, is he? (sighs) Honestly, like the the preface to this was Monday night we went to see Chris Luxon. And that that was kind of well. Hang on, hang on. He wasn't the guy I was actually referring to, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's just clarify that. So on Monday we went to Chris Lux, and you know the one parallel that I drew between then and Tuesday was the age. Basically, the average age in the room was leaning like very old, close to death, um, on both <laughs> nights. Is that? Fair? I think that's fair. I think isn't that's it? a little bit unfair. Close to death is a bit extreme. There was a lot of white hair, though. Yeah, it's skewed older. I'm old, Alexander's old, and they were older than we were. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) 
They were older than Craig, even. <laughs> really old. I don't know, man. Those guys who were in Palmerston North um, were a little bit sprightly when you saw the videos of them uh, beating up the protester inside the venue. Yeah, there are some yes. slightly younger, angry people. But yeah, so we went to see Julian Batchelor, who is currently traveling the country on his Stop Co-Governance tour. And it seems to be a little bit of an act ad hoc tour. I don't know whether it's just that he's having problems securing venues or whether it's a security thing that he doesn't want to announce too far in the future. He basically went up and down the country. It's a bit of bouncing up and down and a little bit random where he's going to pop up next. And certainly for our meeting, um, he announced at 7 p.m. And then Bronwyn, you noticed the day before they changed that? Yeah, they had um, put it down to 3 p.m. And then I think there was a letter drop that same night while we were talking about changing our plans, a letter drop went out around Capity that same night saying, no, 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 it's actually 7 p.m. So apparently, according to the more seasoned protesters, this is a bit of a common tactic of uh, Julian to sort of do a lot of bait and switch in terms of the times. OK, that's interesting if it was. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I was tempted to put it down to incompetence. Given their website, you look at the front page of the website, was it stop? co-governance.kiwi and they've got a whole lot of content on the front page and then as you scroll down you realize that you're looking at a second copy of that same content and then a third copy of the same content because somebody's accidentally copy and pasted more than once or something like that but it just it keeps going with the same like seven or eight blocks of content three times in a row so getting it wrong accidentally i think is also within the realm of possibility well, three of us turned up on the evening. Bronwyn got stuck because of traffic and wasn't able to make it in time, which was a little bit unfortunate. Yeah, well, they're doing lots of roadworks around the Nauranga Gorge and as well along um, Hayward's Hill. So surprisingly, it was supposed to be faster for me to go down the highway towards Wellington from the hut and then back up towards um, Johnsonville and Porua to get to Capity. Three of us turned up uh, on time, not tardy, drove in. There were some protesters there, but it wasn't much of a problem. And then we got to the door and Tim, you were you were first to try and get in, right? Yeah, I thought we were just going to walk straight in. And so I went towards the door and then the doorman sort of stepped in front and I found that a bit weird. I thought he was just going to move aside and then he didn't and stood there. I was like, okay. And he asked what, what we were there for, well, what I was there for. I said, for the co-governance talk. He still didn't move. And he's like, well, what are, what are you hoping to get out of tonight? And I had no idea what to say because I'm thinking like, well, there are, I can think of a few things I shouldn't say in this situation. And he just goes, well, how'd you hear about it? And then I just said from my friend Mark and I point to Mark and then he goes, okay, you can go. <laughs> this, I like, I don't know whether to be proud or not, but it turns out that I look a little bit racist. I am middle-aged, white, bald, bit mean looking, you know, a bit of a skinhead type. Um, and yeah, as soon as Tim pointed at me, the guy's disposition just totally changed. He's like, oh, come in then. And I shook his hand and talked with him a little bit about how they'd messed up the timings. Um, and then afterwards, I had Alexander, liberal college professor with long hair following up behind me. How did you manage to convince them to let you in? I think he didn't look at me carefully. I mean, I said, I'm also with Mark and tried to just go in without any confrontation. And I, he just didn't look at me at all. I, I don't know. I mean, I think of the three of us, Tim is the most likely person to be the college student. You know, I mean, I do have the gray hair, so I'm looking more like their demographic. Now, I was following up on this whole um, bouncer situation at the venue beforehand, um, following, you know, multiple Twitters and Facebook pages about the events, both 
that one, the ones that have happened since and previous stops along Bachelor's tour. It's a bit of a mixed bag as to whether, you know, whether they're deliberately bouncing people. Um, there was some specific accusations that Maori protesters were being excluded. Um, but some people who attended who were uh, part of Man Up, the Destiny Church, apparently they weren't um, bounced at all. They weren't checked. They were just allowed to enter. But if they're wearing their Man Up shirts, well, then potentially, um, given the things that we've heard Brian Tomicky say when we saw him speak in Upper Hut, kind of in line with what Julian Batchelor is saying at points. So I can see why maybe there'd be less of a barrier for the Man Up. Well, I think probably what you need to realise is, according to the Stop Go Government Stock Kiwi site, there are two categories of Maori. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is the the uh, not all Maori, but the treatiest Maori or elite Maori yeah. who they're against. And it's but, that but, that phrase, elite Maori, right, is the one that we heard from Brian Tamaki just a few weeks ago. Mm. But right. there's another thing that's come up um, that's also sort of um, floating around Twitter is that the fact that the venue is considered a private venue. Um, ra- this is a private event rather than a public event. And apparently that was suggested by the police. This is a rumor, but apparently the rumor is that it was suggested by the police that Julian presents the event as a private event as a means to justify excluding people that way. Right. But the thing is, guys, it seemed to very much to be the case in the first half how that we were there, right? That they had good reason to try and stop younger people that look like Tim from getting into the event. They did spend the first half hour dealing with protesters, but uh, the people who were protesting weren't all young. I mean, there was one guy who was gray-haired, Pacquiao with a beard, and you know looked just as much like a Trump supporter as he did like a hippie, but turned out to be on Team Hippie. I mean, it's sort of an object lesson in not judging people by their appearances, I guess. Uh, I'd still argue that most of the people there that were either kicking up a fuss or appeared to be there under false pretenses were younger. I mean, the Three guys in front of us seem to have been trying to secretly record the event. I think there were like two young women at the front that looked genuine. But other than that, most of the younger people either were kicked out at one point for protesting or seemed to be there in more of an observational capacity than Mm. because they were team racist. It did put me on edge thinking, I don't want to check my phone. I don't want to get singled out and yelled at and told to... (laughs) told that I'm being trespassed again and again until I get out. Yeah, being kicked out in the middle of that meeting would not have been fun. It was a cold night. Yeah. It wasn't. It was fine until like maybe 10 o'clock-ish. That's when it started getting cold. You obviously weren't dressed for the occasion from what I read. Yeah, so no, I wasn't. And that's why I can say as the expert of the um, weather situation, it was actually quite fine. Tim would have been very, very comfortable. I'm looking through the website. Oh, my God, it's so awful. Yeah, and don't. Yes, just, I, I've got to the point where it's repeating. <laughs> just don't. Bromwin obviously joined in with chanting outside. Bromwin, how how excited were you about shouting about racists? Oh, well, you know, semi semi excited, uh, but mostly it was singing. People were just singing, you know, um, Trich, um, Maori Waita, other protest songs. There was a small. I guess the journey was. I showed up late, end up joining the protesters in. Uh, you know. But not dressed for the occasion. You know, I had a party, but nowhere to I was dressed for a party, but nowhere to go. And then the someone said, Oh, look, you know, someone, the one person who owns a bit of freehold land by this venue, and it's right across from the venue, he's letting us use it. So it was a bit of a journey off the back roads of State Highway One and over a couple of paddocks and some fences to um get across from the venue. And it was a very it was very chill. 
You know, every now and then people would start doing loud screaming. And I think someone had a bullhorn, which I think you like the most. But it was a very diverse crowd. Um, A lot of um, Maori, um, Tangata Whenua, who were there. Um, Also some Catholic workers from the Catholic worker movement. So anarchist Catholics. Yeah. So you said you're going to write about those in a future newsletter, right? Yeah. Yeah. Going to learn a little bit more. Um, But apparently there's a whole, yeah, there's a whole network of these houses of hospitality and worker farms. So in contrast to your chilled out being outside in the cold. Not cold. Not cold. Was cold. Inside, as Tim says, it it was a little bit tense. And three hours. We had to sit there for three hours. I was kind of hoping at least we'd get some kind of nuanced argument. But guys, it was not very nuanced, was it? Well, yeah, there were kind of the three parts. And the middle bit went on the longest. And I think the most... Jumble. So the first part was about the conspiracy to build an apartheid state, which he said would make all non-Māori slaves, and that New Zealand was already a dictatorship and no longer a democracy. Yeah, that was a little bit extreme. He just kept slapping a like a yellow apartheid sticker on his PowerPoint slides above everything, right? It was like, this, it's apartheid. This is also apartheid. Everything was apartheid. The question I have from looking at his website he seems to be saying that you shouldn't vote for Labour because they're all for co-governments, but he's also saying that National can't be trusted because they haven't sort of made their policies clear that they're against co-governance. And so who is he trying to get people to vote for? I think his plan was that if enough people vote for his party, then they might influence one of the major parties. Oh, so he's actually got a party. Okay, I didn't realize that. No, so, I don't think he has. I don't. Well, he was talking okay. about, you know, if we can get however many votes he wanted, then uh, we'll be able to influence the major party. And it was it was clear that he was thinking about how to influence national. Yeah, I think what he was Not saying the- was that if he could get enough people to promise their votes, they could take those votes and use them to convince one of the existing political parties to stop co-governance, basically, that if he if he could get you know enough signatories to say, I give Julian Batchelor my vote, Julian could then go to ACT, go to National and all the other, right, I, I don't know what to say, right-leaning parties, thank you, um, and see which one of them would basically enact the, uh, the changes that he wants to see. So I don't, he ha- certainly hasn't mentioned starting a political party. I'd be interested if he did, um, because it really would show just how few votes he would get, but possibly he's too savvy to do that. He did quote from an ACT MP, I think, in his presentation on the treaty, and I think ACT generally is opposed to co-governance and related issues. So I think I think that's where he was leaning, but he didn't explicitly say which um, which party he supported. So, Tim, mm. you were saying the beginning of the meeting was all about apartheid, but the middle he moved on to talking about the treaty? Yeah, so he went into a lot of detail around the events surrounding the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi and also doing his own interpretation of it and how in his view, it doesn't say what all the people are telling you it says, and that actually the signatories of the treaty totally signed over all sovereignty to the crown, and that therefore that's another reason why co-governance is totally baseless. I mean, at one point he said he would never learn Te Reo Māori because 
it would mess with his mind and he needs to keep his mind, you know, pointing his head like he's, he doesn't pure? want to mess with this. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> I don't think he said pure, but he implied it. It, it wasn't a racial community argument. The, the idea was that any official recognition of Maori, for example, giving government buildings Maori names and so forth, this is unjustly prizing Maori culture vis-a-vis all the other cultures in New Zealand. He several times said, we've got 160 cultures here in New Zealand with the implication that the status of, say, Somali migrant culture or the culture of, you know, New Zealand's Hungarian community ought to be on the level playing field with Maori. And because we don't have official Hungarian names or official Somali names for government documents or government buildings, why do we have any of these Maori names? It's crazy. And yeah. the you, idea, when you put it that way, it sounds like a really daft argument. <laughs> I remember well, hearing those arguments I back mean, in the eighties. I'm not. I'm not saying it was a reasonable argument. I'm just saying that was the logic that I saw. And he, because he yeah. did that. Though we have 160, probably yep. 130, 160. He said that over and over again, like mm-hmm. it was. You know, this is really relevant information. So you know, the fact that we have five Tokalawans, or however many Tokalawans we have, or how many Ukrainians we have or how many Eritreans we have, all these other cultures ought to be equal. You know, one thing that he he didn't really say is, well, why does English get the special role? You know, I mean, we as English speakers, we expect everything to be in English. What makes English so special? Isn't English also just one of the 160 cultures in New Zealand? I mean, it, it didn't make a lot of sense, his argument, in terms of practical politics. And you, but it you did said- have a sort of internal coherence, I thought. You said about how he dropped this several times. Another thing he just kept using, another word he kept using, and I, I think you laughed a couple of times and, and we exchanged glances, Alexander, was Christianize was a word that he seems to have really adopted and he seemed to quite like that one, right? He said it like, you know, we, everyone's going to say, oh, obviously that's a good thing. And I think, you know, our little corner of the audience, you know, didn't immediately have the warm fuzzies when we heard that word. <laughs> And there's one bit where um, he's talking about some document from Queen Victoria. And it said, you know, her, her gracious majesty, Queen Victoria. And he pounced on the gracious bit and said, gracious, you know, like grace of God. It's a Christian thing. As if we were to say, oh, how wonderful, this Christian thing. And apparently not aware that calling a monarch gracious is just the most banal bit of empty phrasing. <laughs> I mean, that, that was really strange. But what I what I found odd about that was that he wasn't using the word Christian. Queen Victoria wasn't Christian. She was Christianized. And it was like, well, did she convert in a middle age? Or, you know, why why is he describing her as Christianized? I, maybe I don't understand the proper usage of that word, but it, it seemed a little bit weird, his choice of wording there. One thing I thought yeah. was odd is how much detail he had about the treaties signing. I couldn't understand why he was going into so much detail at first. But towards the end, he had this line that, you know, you're not allowed to reinterpret the treaty as you see fit. And the implication was, you know, as they understood the treaty in the 1840s, that is set in stone forever and ever. And, uh, you know, we're not allowed to change a single word. You know, we have to be to honor the treaty means to honor the original meaning of the treaty. And that was the argument, at which point then it made sense to me why he was doing all this incredibly detailed parsing of the original phrasing. But so, uh, I, I guess there are parallels there with kind of the originalist interpretation of the US Constitution. Yes, but I think also parallels to in, uh, literalist interpretations of the Bible. 
You know, you're mm. not allowed to reinterpret the Bible. It's the word of God. We're not allowed to reinterpret the Treaty of Waitangi. It's, you know, it's set in stone for all time. And uh, I was thinking later on that this idea that you're not allowed to, to reinterpret the treaty in light of, you know, later politics is freaking crazy. Because if we really take that attitude, then there's no basis for any New Zealand government at all, is there? I mean, isn't the treaty with the British crown? I mean, if we really want to say we have to honor the treaty in its original meaning and not update it in any way, then there's no basis for any New Zealand parliament at all, is there? Did I misunderstand that bit? Probably not. <laughs> so one of the things I I went into my articles, so I, I thought I'd have a look at some of the examples because he was really specific about some of the Māori words. And I was curious where he was getting that from, given that he said, you know, if he learned today, he wouldn't learn today Māori because he would have to imbibe Māori activist politics if he did. So one of the examples I kind of delved into was his translation of the word taonga, and that he cited two examples from dictionaries, contemporary dictionaries. The first one was the 1820 Grammar and Vocabulary Dictionary by Samuel Lee, written in Britain with under advisement from uh, Hongihika, from Napui. So he cited this definition, and the definition given there was property procured by the spear. So he said, well, that one means that it's only war booty. It can't be anything like today we understand as treasure, and that's how it's been translated by the Waitangi Tribunal. So he says, no, nope, no, nope, that's totally incorrect. It says here does in the dictionary that, does from 1820. Out, does that rule out guns? <laughs> yeah. It's, it, well, his like argument he was, was it rules out things like sections of the ER spectrum for radio. You know, you can't right. conquer the the ER spectrum, but the sphere. Therefore, Mari have no right to, to have any say over, um, you know, how radio spectra are distributed. Yeah. And, and other, you know, things that weren't literal things that you could sort of hold in your hand. And it struck me as, again, very literalist kind of approach to translation where there could be multiple other usages that were used among Māori. And he cited from another dictionary from 1844 as well that defines it as property. But when I looked into it, I found that actually it's basically a copy-paste. Like He just plagiarized it from um, John Ansell, former Acts marketing person who ran the blog Treaty Gate that was just getting all these things against the Treaty of Waitangi. On the online Māori Dictionary, they actually list examples of it being used more figuratively from uh, 1849 and another from 1858 in a Māori language newspaper. But again, it's an example of him taking a very literalist approach and then trying to beat you over the head with it. This can't possibly mean anything else. Therefore, that's the meaning but, for that time. We can't reinterpret it all. There, yeah. there can't be any other possible meanings. This is typical of the, the types of people that do this, though. They will take whatever interpretation they want, and then foist that on their audience who are generally not critical thinkers who then will just parrot what they've heard. I think we also have to consider who Julian Batchelor is outside yeah. of this whole co-governance tour. I mean, he is an evangelical by training. He went to Bible college. Um, he did do a bit of a stint as a principal. It seems that the co-governance is sort of his new bag, so to speak. Even as back as the late 80s, early 90s, his number one uh, bugbear was gay rights. One of the things we did after we all sort of regrouped and went back to debrief sort of started flipping through this document that we received on Mark's uh, windshield, which was put down by protesters, which sort of lists all the things that Julian Batchelor has done in his life, you know, all the sketchy stuff he's done, all the things he's put on his website and started to do a little bit of fact checking. And yeah, there's articles that we can find online as far back as the early 90s where, you know, Julian's been making some inflammatory comments regarding the LGBTQIA plus community. But in the same way, a lot of those arguments that he's using in terms of language do pop up. 
again, things can't possibly change from what they were 2,000, 3,000 years ago. It's not just that, but he also ran a kind of consultancy company for churches for evangelism. So he was produced these materials for um, churches claiming that like the current church today with this approach for being gay-friendly and whatever else, that that's why you only have 2% of the congregation being evangelists. But he said <laughs> their target was going to churches, they have to buy his book and his materials, he run workshops and stuff, and the goal would be to get the church up to 100% evangelists, 100% turn into God botherers uh- and I, I kind of wonder, I mean, you know, who, like, what does he think of Ray Comfort? Does does Ray Comfort success in the U.S. and as a proper evangelist, as an apologist? Well, uh, Ray Comfort's uh, one of his suggested materials oh, in yeah. his course. Yeah. So. Cut from the same cloth, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, but decidedly less successful in many ways, maybe. Or <laughs> well, is he as successful? Is he... Oh, right, right. I can think of other reasons that there's not more than 2% of the church are evangelists. I mean, looking through his old website, he does cite some of the reasons, and he says that people perhaps are embarrassed and they don't want to go and uh, and force their beliefs onto others. And I think those are all reasonable, reasonable approaches and reasonable opinions to have. And so, yeah, it's, it's hard to be an evangelist when uh, when the population is uh, perhaps a lot more educated and uh, has seen all these sort of te- tactics before and. Um, doesn't yep. necessarily want to join up to your group that you've become involved with. And I think yeah. actually evangelism is really used to bolster the beliefs of the evangelizer rather than uh, convince others of uh, its truth. In one of the interviews about his evangelism work, he cites some survey that says like supposedly 5% of the respondents came to Christ through um, the message of God's love. And it was over 50% because of a fear of hell and God's judgment. So he Which says, that exactly... teaches us that we have to be more like fire and brimstone and more judgmental and more like aggressive that, towards people. That's exactly what Ray Comfort says. Mm-hmm. Right. So they probably probably are quite yep. a similar, similar theology. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting for me to read what you'd found about his evangelical past. And I really like the parallels you drew where it's it's kind of just using the same trick, but now instead of for Christians, he's doing the same kind of thing for older, slightly more racist people who were worried about the Maori taking their land, right? That he's he's doing the same kind of fear-mongering to these guys um, and spreading a, a slightly different but not too different message. It's a literal hell on earth, New Zealand under co-governance. Well, a lot of his, his beef seemed to be that he had owned some property and suddenly because of a co-governance thing, he couldn't do something he wanted with his property. Did anybody in their research figure out, you know, what it was that he suddenly wasn't allowed to do? Or, I mean, he seemed to have had some sort of property dispute that got under his skin. I know the document that was left on Mark's um, windshield stated that it was a, he had cut down a Bahutakawa tree and that had upset a local iwi. But didn't he give us, so where he moved, he said uh, it was 99% Maori, and apparently this meant he wasn't racist, because what racist person would move somewhere where lots of Maori people live? (laughs) It was such a weird argument. I I was just thinking, well, maybe a racist person that likes to poke the bear. Maybe somebody who's looking for a fight might want to do that. Like, it just kept going, right? So, Bronwyn, at some point you messaged me and said that you'd heard that they were just wrapping up. And I was like, no, 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 this is this is just the halfway point. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I think it was around 8, 8.30. And I had left, I'd gone back down along the highway, over the fences again to join the protesters at the bottom. 
you know, just yell at some cars as they go on through. And yeah, we were told by, I guess, I'm not sure if they were sort of Maori wardens or if they were a different sort of security group. And they said, oh, no, we hear that they're finished. We hear that they're finished. And the police kind of disperse. And the event security team, who were just these guys in red, orange hives, they dispersed. So it was just two or three of us protesters, a small media team, just waiting for a long, long time. And well, so- Bat- Batchel clearly had no idea about time management. You know, he started off by saying, we're going to talk for an hour. We'll take a break at 830 and then sort of, you know, nine comes along and he says, we'll go another five minutes and we get to 930 or and I can't remember the exact time. But when I started to find the chair uncomfortable, so I was really waiting for the break and I was afraid to get up and get a drink before the break because I thought people would assume I was a protester and get kicked out. I spent a lot of time pondering his inability to keep time. What What do you think the reactions of the crowd who generally came along to listen were to the actions of the protesters. Do you think they were swayed by the fact that they've come along to this event that has all these protesters, or did that sort of strengthen their uh, will uh, to 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 listen to him and 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 therefore he what he's saying must be getting under people's skin, and therefore it's got some truth to it. I think for a lot of them, it confirmed their own stereotypes about the protesters. I don't think it was swaying any any of the audience said they were pretty set in their ways and would yell things at the protesters to sit down and shut up and no one wants to hear you and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's the main impression I got. And it seemed to, at the end, there was, I don't know what it was that happened, but the yelling, I think, was a lot louder from the audience at the end. I think everyone was getting a bit tired and sick and wanted to go home, maybe. <laughs> so they don't want to get there any longer. Every protester that stood up was just another five minutes added to the event. <laughs> it's like, just get out now. Let us go. Yeah, but de- definitely it felt like they were being emboldened. I think they were getting louder. There was one guy in particular, a couple of rows um, in front of us, who once he'd started voicing his opinions, he- you could see him kind of getting more bold as the evening went on. And so, you know, it was almost like shouting hallelujahs, but he'd shout the odd word that would kind of show his agreement with Bachelor. Um, And yeah, I I certainly think that these people found this a safe space where there wasn't free speech, despite the fact that Bachelor was talking about how this was a free speech area. Um, I mean, obviously, at the same time, I can understand that, you know, free speech doesn't mean that you can just interrupt someone when they're talking. And he was giving a talk, no matter how bad the content was, and he had a right to be heard without people interrupting him. But yeah, he was like, oh, no, I'm very much for free speech. I'm big on free speech. But yeah, I I think he likes free speech when it's an echo chamber. When everybody agrees with him, I think that's his idea of free speech. Well, he did attempt to engage some of his protesters in a little bit of a way. He used to think, I'd like to educate you about this. You know, he had this sort of uh, arrogance, um, (laughs) arrogant, self-righteous thing to him. But, you know, in fairness, the protesters took that same thing too. you know, educate yourself on the treaty, educate yourself. I mean, that's just a common rhetorical trope these days that, you know, anyone with me needs to be educated. Mm. But, he did uh, I, I kind of felt that the protesters at some level ceded the moral high ground by, you know, by not letting him talk at all. By throwing a rock at my car. That's how they ceded the high ground. <laughs> I'm glad you that should have taken wrong. the low road, Mark. I was actually thinking about this. Do we know it was a rock or... We just had a loud bang on the car. It Something might, it might have been the car. There, there, there was one of the media team who had, who was hitting the cars with his hand. He was hitting so the back of the that. 
Um, no, yeah, no. It as, sounded as like we were, a rock to me. It did, as yeah. we were walking towards my car, I could see there was a woman in the field where Bronwyn had been protesting at the top. She was further back, and she, whenever a car went past, she was throwing something at it. Admittedly, it could have just been like a hard clod of earth, but it it sounded more like a rock. Could have um, been. A, she, could have been a muffin. They were giving out lots of muffins at oh. one point. There was food. There muffin, was, there that was would have been amazing. You got muffined. <laughs> But yeah, but one thing one thing that I found really funny was at one point he did a Donald Trump and Julian Batcher told us that nobody knew more about the treaty than he did. Um, <laughs> and it was like, yeah, oh, my surely, God, surely Donald Trump would know more about the treaty than he did. <laughs> and also, like he implied that a lot of this knowledge, he'd done the research himself. But like that Tonga, but that was totally just copy pasted from this treaty gate blog. Like you read the blog and it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's almost exactly what he said turns out yeah he yeah. does it it seems that he has a history of doing this um i'm pulling up some of the work that he's um that some of the reporting that was done by people's blogs against him when he was doing his dodgy earthworks as they call it and apparently yeah he, he had a website and he was pulling up all this stuff and copying and pasting it from the department of conservation and from the local tonka tonka fedwa to make it sound like you know oh yeah we're all best buddies but really apparently the real um correspondence was less than friendly. I'm sure Batcher's mind popping from somebody else's blog is doing research. Yes, exactly. Um, That's what I thought. (laughs) Did you notice there was someone from the Waitangi Tribunal in the in the talk? Towards the end someone stood up and said, I'm from the Waitangi Tribunal. I'm very disappointed in what I've heard today and he left. Yeah, I don't think uh, it was the tribunal. I think he was from trusts. From one of the trusts, yeah. Oh I may have misunderstood them. Yes, yeah, oh, so I he, guess kind of at the other end, the other side of the tribunal process. So a he trust who helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, he, Julian probably thought that he was one of the non-Maori elites that is helping Maori for some reason. Well, I mean, I think he defines Maori elites in such a way that if anyone is against him, obviously that's person in the elite. Mm-hmm. And I don't think <laughs> no, he's... Uh, it's the no you know, Scotsman. I don't think, yeah, it's a no two Scotsman argument. So there's probably 4.9 million Maori elites in the country then, if it's everybody that disagrees with him. Well, some of those people, I'm sure, Mark, are merely ignorant, and he would like to educate them. <laughs> but I think well, it's, it's also, lucky he's doing a tour, isn't it? But I think it's kind of worth noting that this is probably the second time in quite a short amount of time that uh, Bachelor has spoken in Capiti. I believe he was there maybe um, sort of Mayish, maybe Marchish, and it was actually quite a big protest, and people got trespassed. So that might have actually been a bit of a deterrent for some of the protesters. I know a couple of the people who stayed sort of down by the lower gate had been trespassed at an earlier event. Oh, people were trespassed in scare quotes when we were in there, but they were acting like it it was some kind of magic incantation. I don't know whether this is legally what you're meant to do, but inside they were treating it like you had to trespass someone three times. So Julian would look at a protester and say, you are trespassed, you are trespassed, you are trespassed. That is actually the law in New Zealand. Really? As as I understand it, you need to be warned three times in order for a trespass to take effect. But from what I understand, though, it would have to be the owner of the land or the building who was issuing the trespass. He can't just trot around various places in the country and say, oh, you're now trespassed and you can never show up to one of my events and somewhere else. That That's not how trespass works. Well, I think the implication was you're trespassed from this event and please leave. And um, right. But they, they didn't want to have a direct confrontation a physical confrontation with the protesters that they could avoid it 
it seemed. So they would call the police and then police officers would come in and the protesters would refuse to leave. And then when the police came, they would follow the protesters. So the, the police didn't drag anybody out. The appearance of the police meant that people would then peacefully leave. I mean, with yeah. hearing and so on. But, so I um, guess, I guess it, the police... Uh... It, it did seem to me, though, that the police were taking their sweet time. <laughs> they did I, seem somewhat reluctant. Yeah, right. well, so just, were... they, there was no sense of urgency on their part. And in no, the beginning, there when there were the lots peace. of people standing up and shouting, um, you know, they, they came, they, they left with one person. And Max just said, oh, that person, too. And the police did not care. They walked the one guy out and then they were away for a bit and then they eventually leisurely returned. Yeah, but this was this was actually something of a problem in Palmerston North. They were the most recent stop on this uh, infamous roadshow. Uh, apparently there's about five. They estimate 500 protesters. Maybe the numbers could be a bit more conservative, but does it, I have seen pictures. It does look a little bit more sizable than we had in Capity. There was there's been video going around and it has made sort of New Zealand news, both on Stuffed and the NZ Herald of a protester who was blowing a whistle. And, you know, they sort this guy sort of really was really roughhousing her, pulling her hair, trying to get the whistle out of her mouth and dragging her along the floor by her legs with people shouting, you know, pull off her pants, which is really disgusting. Um, but apparently the police, yeah, the police were outside. There's nobody inside. So I wonder if that's going to be changing the tone of um, upcoming roadshows. Well, I also wondered what happened to the people when they left. I mean, did they get arrested or were they just expelled from the venue? I think I just saw people drive away um, when I was sitting down, when I was down by the lower gate and we saw cars drive by, you'd have some protesters start getting really amped up. And so someone says, oh, no, 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 they probably were just trespassed. We, we know who so and so are because a couple of protesters I, were able to park right by the event, by the venue. I'm not sure what the basis would be for an arrest. Surely turning up to public meeting and being a nuisance is, is not something that's against the law. Yeah. And well, it, trespassing is against the law, though, isn't it? So. But you're not trespassing until you've been trespassed. And if you leave as soon as you've been trespassed, then at no point have you broken the law, I'd imagine. I see. And it was somewhat of a public event. Like we've been to events like the the one where we went to see Brian Tamaki and others announcing their Freedoms NZ party where you have to RSVP. But this event, there was no RSVPing. I I think their web um, developer probably can't get his crap together well enough to be able to make an RSVP form. But for whatever reason, they just advertised it on the site and anybody can rock up. At whatever time they decide to start the meeting, <laughs> <laughs> which which heavily biases towards people with plenty of free time, which are old retired people, I suppose. Yeah. And the fact that they are trying to filter people on the door, like, you know, the fact that they were concerned about Tim and presumably there would have been others that they turned away. I, I guess this means the the crowd is going to slant more old and white, even if younger people want to be there genuinely. Some of them might find they're not allowed in because Julian's only going to get more suspicious over time as more people stand up and protest. And I can't help but think that's a good thing. <laughs> the more paranoid he is, I think the better. Indeed. Have we done that to death? Just I think I think a final thing is that if you you know, one way that you can protest is if you know that what the venues are in advance and that and they maybe belong to councils, go and complain. Don't give them a venue. Yes, definitely activism. Like often with these things, the venues don't know who was booked. Um, often as people get savvy, like happened with Counterspin, Counterspin were getting third parties to book 
venues for them so that the the people owning the venue didn't know that it was conspiracy nut bars that were uh, planning to use it and and often what the protesters found for con- for counterspin was when they phoned the venue and told them who was actually going to use it the venue cancelled immediately so definitely worth doing that it's not cancel culture you're not doing anything bad you're doing a public service by reporting to these venues just in case they're not aware. In our case, I think the venue was aware. Ecclesia Church seems like it was very much on board with yeah. the message that Julian Bachelor and, and, had. And that's, and that's the thing. I think that's what the, the venues that he is getting access to are privately owned and sympathetic. Same thing as the Brian Tomicky event that, you know, there's a there's an evangelical church on that site as well in Silverstream. So, you know, that's not going to stop anybody, you know, people complaining about co-governance or complaining about Tom McKee's transphobia, that's not going to bother these places, but it will bother, you know, a city council. It will bother, you know, the local pool. But the the Invercargill mayor, I think, has um, apparently been quite friendly with Julian Batchelor. Julian's quite loud and proud about it on his website. Uh, I don't know what the reality of this is. I don't know how much Julian might be twisting it, but he seems to think that um, the Invercargill mayor is, you know, a close personal friend of his who agrees with his message. I think he'd been in one of the talks, hadn't he? Yeah, I think he'd been there. But, you know, th- there's a difference between being there and agreeing to everything Julian says. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe he does agree. Maybe maybe this is what this guy thinks. I don't know. Mm. He's no Tim Shebbolt. <laughs> Spoken yeah. like a true Kiwi. <laughs> um, the name of this mayor is Nobby Clark. Now, we shouldn't make fun of him for his name no let's make, fun of his sh- let's make fun of him for his terrible terrible politics and beliefs yes let's make fun of him for that <laughs> but yes uh okay nobby all right shall i talk about my recent trip do it we would love to hear how amazing it is in north america did you <laughs> you know first question let's just get let's cut to the chase did you convert to mormonism no did you no, eat uh, yes, and I think poutine's overrated. What? It's amazing. <laughs> I got to see this poutine that you've had. I, I think you don't. I think you've had some counterfeit poutine, is what I think. <laughs> you had well, disco fries. I don't think you had poutine. You had disco fries. Okay, so what's disco fries then? Uh, disco fries is some sort of New Jersey bastardization, is what it is. It's just mm. like it may have gravy. There's cheese. It's fries. Whereas poutine is kind of a tinned beef gravy with cheese curds. Yes, definitely and, had that. Yeah. Definitely had that in Canada. And I thought it was ugh, okay. Yeah. Um, are, are you a fry and burger person anyways? Ah, huh, yeah, but the 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 gravy taste I didn't think was all that great. And the cheese yeah. curds put me off a bit. But there was one version of it that had um, jalapenos in it, which was actually pretty good. So oh, fuck. that was all right. It was all right, but anyway, but that was yeah, that was when we got to Canada. But uh, yes, the first the first stop was Salt Lake City. Uh, yeah, we we did a few Mormon things. We went and visited the temples. Unfortunately, the the main temple was under construction; had been for three years, and it's rather uh, rather major refurbishment. And uh, it's a sort of a a construction site at the moment, so we didn't really get a a good view of it. And it's got another three years until it's completed. But we went into a couple of the temples. We uh, uh, interacted with some missionaries, which were mostly young women, probably sort of in their uh, late teens or early 20s. And the conversations were generally fairly awkward. They don't seem to have much in the way of uh, conversational skills. 
Of course, uh, we were perfect conversationalists and uh, told them we were from New Zealand, which uh, fascinated them coming from such a faraway place. Maybe that's why they're on the home turf, just because it's an easy place to kind of learn the basics of starting up a conversation with people. Yeah, well, we, we did sort of think about that, that all the missionaries were generally women. And we thought that maybe it's because they sort of tend, tend to send the men out who can sort of go around with sort of less safety issues to go and knock on people's doors compared to sending women out, which perhaps is uh, sort of more of a more of a risk of assault and all that sort of stuff. And I believe women um, have a shorter mission trip. Mm, it, it's, right. it's I think it's shorter by, um, if not a year, then certainly several months. But nowadays it's actually changing with a Mormon culture because, you know, even the dudes, they just have other things to do with their life. And no one really wants to spend, you know, years out, you know, in the middle of nowhere, not having fun. So, you know, COVID, mm. you know, COVID, the impact of COVID has really changed even those lives. But when you say <laughs> yeah. in the middle of nowhere, you mean basically in a field outside Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> those poor, those poor Australians. <laughs> Thought they were going somewhere luxurious and really just got sent over the ditch. <laughs> well, not well, everyone can be not everyone can be a missionary in New York City, Mark. No, sadly. Or, or, deepest or, or in, well, I was gonna say that, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um when we were in the temple, uh, we we overheard another couple of people asking some missionaries if they'd seen the Book of Mormon. <laughs> which I thought was quite- Good question. A, uh, good question to ask, but uh, they hadn't. Yeah, they um, the 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 temples themselves were quite impressive, impressively large buildings. Uh, listen to a bit of the organ music. They have uh, recitals every every lunchtime, so we sort of sat there for half an hour and listened to uh, a recital. Where I think we saw two recitals, and both of them were uh, female uh, organists. So I don't know whether that was a, a fair sampling or whether it is generally more of a, a female thing to be doing. Um, and we also visited the convention center, which is absolutely huge. Uh, it seats something like 21,000 people, which they use for their general conference that they have twice a year. And that's about all. So I thought wow. it would be a great, it would be a great venue for a, uh, a rock concert, uh, but I'm sure they don't do that sort of thing there. Um, Did you visit the real Mecca of Mormonism, the shopping mall? <laughs> uh, well, there, there were there were some shopping malls. Yeah, there was a there was a place called City Creek, uh, which we visited, which uh, had had the Deseret store in it, which sold all the all the Mormon art you could buy to put on your wall, and also sold but very nice the, ice cream. Is, is that the Kincaid stuff? Uh, <laughs> Thomas Kincaid, not, you know the really flourishing. Yeah, it's houses. all it's all. Um, it's all kitschy kind of stuff. Okay, uh, so you've you've, you've bad mouth poutine. Did you eat <laughs> any Mormon cultural delicacies? I don't believe so. <laughs> Do you know of any Mormon yeah, cult- exactly. culinary delicacies? Tell me, tell well, me how can I identify? Um, I think I think there's something that's called dirty coke. So oh, pretty, no. you know, no, you know flavored coke. Like get... they put in coffee creamers in their coke, and they do all this. No, didn't didn't get to that. But yeah, we we did notice the lack of cafes there um, when we sort of wandered out early one morning. As there was no real place where you could get a coffee. Not that either of us are coffee drinkers, but you know, just going out early to maybe try and have some some breakfast. The the only things that were open really were the the fast food uh, halls. 
So sorry, you so, said that was City Creek you went to? Yes. So that is the that is the big Mormon um shopping mall that cost them one and a half billion dollars. Oh wow. Wow. Yeah, well it, it is pretty extensive and it yeah, it has I mean it's the, the architecture is quite nice. Um it's got this sort of creek running through the middle of it and they've got a little waterfall there and yeah, it is all very nice. And they've got a cheesecake factory which we visited. <sighs> Amazing. Yeah, that was very nice. So while I was in um, Salt Lake City, I met up with one of the um, local skeptics there, um, a guy by the name of Shane, who runs the Beehive Skeptics. Um, and the Beehive Skeptics, the Utah is known as the Beehive State. And the reason for that is a little bit obscure, but it's kind of like the Mormons are seen as the the worker bees. And so... Um, MLM uh, worker bees. Well, yeah, possibly. Well, just um, cooperation enables you to work for the common good. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it's not unreasonable. Yeah. Uh, although there is apparently an allusion in the Bible to um, America being the land of milk and honey. And so the honey there is uh, how how the Mormons came to uh, get the name of uh, worker bees, perhaps. Um, but yeah, so uh, Shane, it was nice to meet Shane, and he showed me around this weird uh, sculpture garden that a Mormon had uh, uh, created. You could basically, it was kind of a suburban garden, you just walk through it and it had all these uh, sculptures of things like the Sphinx, and then it had images from the Bible with Bible verses and things like dinosaur bones sticking out of the ground and <laughs> so on. It was all very, very weird. <laughs> But this guy dedicated about 20 years of his life uh, to building this sculpture garden called the, the Geigel Sculpture Garden. So that was that was interesting. Um, and then uh, and then, of course, we visited the MLM land. So as I've mentioned before, so Susan went to her uh, special VIP day for Close to My Heart. And uh, and Mark and Broman, I sent you a photo of the um, Close to My Heart headquarters. It was and its neighbor. And its neighbor. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, yes, a big, big building with a lovely American flag and uh, fountains out the front. And then just across the road was the doTERRA building, which I sort of took a photo of. And but, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't uh, too interested in looking around for too so, many MLMs that day. So what was it? What was the story around the property, though? I thought there was something that would that someone had owned the property. Was it the people who owned close to my heart? They had owned the property. Yeah. So. Yeah, so the the story I was told was that the the founder of Close to My Heart, the MLM, the scrapbooking MLM, actually owned 30 acres of land in this place, Pleasant Grove, where they're headquartered. And so it would seem that they've sold the land off to all these other MLM companies to to create their headquarters buildings. So, so basically, um, if this, if you know, Close to My Heart doesn't really like, you know, doesn't need to thrive, they're already rich. <laughs> indeed, indeed, yes. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there are there are basically a whole bunch of other MLMs around that area, um, including the uh, scrap. I think scrapping up. I think that's the name of the competitor one. Stamping up. Um, stamping it stamping up. up. That's the one. Yes, stamping up. Yes. So that was. Well, it reminds close. me of you know when the gold rush comes. The way to make money during the gold rush is to sell gold mining equipment. Yes. You know, the, so the way to make money from LM MLMs is to cater to sell things to the MLM people. Yeah, that's kind of funny. Hmm. And so the other skeptic uh, thing that I did uh, was when we got up to Calgary, um, we met up with a couple of uh, skeptics there. 
uh, well, we met up with with Adrian Hill, who's a who's a good friend of um, Susan Gerbic, and she's a Wikipedia editor for Susan, and also is one of the hosts on the Skeptic Zone podcast. So it was quite nice to meet up with her, and she arranged to have a uh, Skeptics in the Pub meetup uh, that evening. We we're about, uh, I think. There were eight skeptics from Calgary turned up, and uh, we had a, a nice meal and a good, uh, good discussion about skeptical issues. So that was that was very nice for for them to to host us like that. Nice. And did you report to them that we've we've got it all sorted in New Zealand? That there's no need for skepticism here anymore because we fixed all our issues. Well, yes, that was the only reason I was allowed out of the country because all the, all the skeptical issues had been sorted out. So the work had been done. <laughs> yes, completed. And then the only other really funny thing on the trip, well, of course, driving through um, British Columbia, we saw lots of Sasquatch statues and references and so on. So uh, I think it's sort of treated a bit like a sort of local legend, but a bit of a joke, and that uh, people realise that Sasquatch isn't really real, but. Who knows? Some people um, but, have realised that, but not everybody. <laughs> no, true. But we had a bit of a problem with our RV, and um, so when we when we took delivery of the RV at the at the yard, the the young lady sort of showed us around and showed us that the hot water was working and all that sort of stuff. And then we drove off. And a few days into the trip, we had a little problem, and that the the hot water was unreliable, and, and so it has a has a propane uh, heater. And a an electronic ignition which um, sort of tries to light the gas flame and then heat up the water. Well, this is a bit unreliable, so we ended up having to uh, call the the service people a few times, and they directed us to uh, some service people in a place called Jasper. They weren't much help, but then we got to a place called Revelstoke, and there was a little guy by the name of Alvin, and he was able to fix our uh, hot water issues in the RV, but he then started telling me about how the RV or the universe is telling him where the fault is in the um, in the system and can direct him and make him go in the right direction to go and find the fault. And he was relaying all this to me, and I was trying to keep a straight face. But he did fix it. He he did, but together we kind of diagnosed what the problem was. We sort of stepped through it, and and I think actually the main problem was that there was some sort of a spider cobweb inside the gas pipe, and so it wasn't getting good flow of gas through to to light the flame. And so he just got one of his uh, little um, brushes out and sort of cleaned out the cleaned out the pipe and sort of reset the distance from the ignition to the the pipe, and it was reliable after that. So. Maybe the universe was telling him where to to look, but uh, I kind of doubt that. Did you invite him to take part in a $100,000 challenge? (laughs) No, I think it's only open to New Zealanders. Oh, is it? I can't remember what the rules say. I'll have to check. And I don't think he's out there uh, promoting this as a a talent that he has in making money out of it. I think he's probably just making good money out of um, servicing RVs that come through his way and uh, using whatever. Yeah, whatever techniques he uses, he gets them fixed. Nice. So, yeah, we had a good time. It was very warm. We saw lots of uh, beautiful scenery and uh, a little bit of wildlife. Saw a couple of bears on the side of the road. Saw lots of squirrels. Sorry, hang on, hang on. To the the non-Kiwis listening, when Craig says bears, he means bears. Bears, okay. Black bears. Like I, I see a couple of bears on the side of the road most days, you know, driving through Porua. But yeah, bears, the, the big scary thing. So were they close? Did they look cool? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So one of them we saw on the side of a highway. 
as we were driving uh, out of Banff. Uh, and then another one we actually saw on the side of the road in, in the township of Jasper itself. They, they're, they're all categorized as black bears, but the ones that we saw in Jasper had sort of brown fur um, and saw a few few um, deer. We didn't see any moose, unfortunately. Oh, you need to go to Fjordland of... for the moose. I believe they're down there, right? I doubt it. <laughs> um, and uh, saw lots of squirrels, which are, of course, a novelty to New Zealanders because we, we never see uh, no squirrels here in New Zealand. But uh, they make fascinating noises. Um, and it wasn't until the last few days that I actually realized that all the noises that I thought were actually birds were actually squirrels. And uh, yeah, they just, as you're walking along a hiking track, you hear these sort of chirping sounds. And to me, it sounded like a bird, but no, nope, squirrels and probably calling out to other squirrels to say, hey, here comes a human. But yep, that was a good trip. And uh, we definitely enjoyed it. Awesome. And it's a bit cooler here in New Zealand. Tell me it's a while before you're going away again. Uh yes, we don't have any don't have any plans uh, to to uh, go away anytime soon. Awesome. Uh, well, it's good to have you back. Brings. Yes, thank you. So, the only other thing we need to talk about is the conference coming up and it's um only 4 months away and it will be in Dunedin on the 24th to 26th of November. It's going to be a fantastic time. The organizing committee is being very active at the moment, and we uh, to the point where we've got all the speakers decided, we're putting the schedule together, we're getting the website up. That's not quite complete yet, but uh, that should be up hopefully in the next week or so, I think. We just need to get all the speaker bios up there and so on. You'll be able to go and buy tickets. There's also going to be a uh, nice dinner on the Saturday night. We've got a uh, a venue at St. Margaret's College, which is uh, close to the venue, Toitu, the Settlers Museum. And um, we'll be having a nice dinner there. I think it's going to be reasonably priced. I think something like uh, $70 a head, um, which gives you a lovely buffet dinner and entertainment. Yeah, lovely evening. So looking forward to seeing lots of people come to the conference. That sounded, vaguely be there? Like a, sounded vaguely like a threat. <laughs> Did it? Okay. Yes. I will be there. Broman and I are planning a road trip. I don't know whether, Tim, you're tempted to come down to Dunedin. Uh, we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> I've never been I to Dunedin. I haven't put any thought to it, but probably. Okay. You, know, you know what the real get would be if we got James to do a road trip? James, I yeah. don't think James would. Um, no, no. I As like, I said, that would train. be the get. That would be a real yeah. get. Mm. I could see him traveling by train. That that suits his commuter look with his waistcoat and his pocket watch or whatever it is. Right. So one good thing um, is that we've managed to arrange some very reasonably priced accommodation. Um, so there's student accommodation again at St. Margaret's College, and it'll be $110 a night for a single room, including a breakfast in the morning. So that's that's sort of quite a lot cheaper than it would be if you were going to go and stay in a hotel. We have some things for Membership Corner, just let oh, people know. Of course, what... the Membership Corner, I've forgotten all about that. Yeah, well, you haven't gone to any meetings in a few weeks, have you? No. Um, so just starting off on Friday, the 28th, July 28th, in Wellington, we do have our usual skeptics in the pub inside the Intercont Intercontinental Hotel at 6 p.m. Um, do not go to the lot. Do not go to Two Gray Street, which is the restaurant of the same name as the address. 
It's in the lobby lounge. I so think that's I think we need to give up the disclaimer eventually. Like people are getting bored of listening to this. I I, I don't think they are, and I think it needs to be said forever and ever. Ad nauseum. I don't I think like two people went to the wrong place, and now everybody has to listen to this every other. I, week. I, maybe they I never show up at all. Maybe you should rename. You should rename the event to "Do Not Go to Two Gray Street." <laughs> well, no, they have to go to Two Gray Street. That's the actual address of the Intercontinental Hotel. Okay, do not the, go to the Two Gray Street. Lounge the in the Intercontinental Hotel. hotel. Is, that's all we need to say. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, the following week, um, August the 3rd at 6.30 at the Fork and Brewer is the science-based healthcare activism meeting at 6.30. And then just on behalf of the Need and Skeptics in the Pub, they will have their monthly meeting 6 p.m. on August 10th at Umbrello. So um, put that in your calendars. And there will be an Auckland Skeptics in the Pub at the Dice and Fork on Tuesday the 1st of August. Okay. Awkward silence. That must yeah. mean we're finished. You can just edit that out if you want, or leave it in. Let's see what our listeners think. How long can we do an awkward silence for? <laughs> I can I can insert whatever silence we want we want oh. into the podcast through the magic of editing. Anyway, you have been listening to the Yena podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can send us an email to news at skeptics.nz. All that remains now is to thank our wonderful guests, Tim and Alexander, and our not so wonderful uh, regular hosts, Bronwyn oh, and Mark. Yeah, don't forget us. We can't have we can't. We have hold you this guys. podcast together. <laughs> we have to make the guests feel more special than you. They they are special. Thank you guys. It was good to have you here. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having us. See you all next time. Bye. Kiara, or actually, I shouldn't say, kahite, kahite. Kahite, no. <laughs> <laughs>